So to get us thinking in the right direction for what we're going to look at as the main point for the sermon this morning, I want to do a little movie quiz for you, a little movie activity. Fair warning, these are difficult, so don't, don't kick yourself if you don't get them correct, but it will help us think about it. I looked up this idea of how would you summarize a movie in just one sentence or, or one, one idea. So here's the first one. This movie is summarized in one sentence, one phrase, an adopted kid's older brother won't let him hold the hammer. What's the answer? Thor. Thor. You guys are better at this than I thought. Okay. All right. Don't get too cocky. Here comes number two. All right. So here comes number two. Second one. A group takes nine hours of your life over the course of three movies just to return jewelry. <laughs> Answer, Lord of the Rings, yes. All right, number three. Health codes ignored, friends made, food served. Answer, ratatouille, way to go. Heard the right answer down here from, from the front, so well played. Number four. Girl finds happily ever after by getting a haircut. Oh, very confident answer over here. Tangle, the Rapunzel story. Okay, you guys were way better at that, which tells me we're watching way too many movies around here, so that was really good. Now, what's the purpose of that? It's a great skill in life, and it's a great help to be able to take a big idea and summarize it down to what is most important. This is particularly important when life is complicated and complex. Those of you who have kids, you're taking care of grandkids, you're going to work, you're busy, sometimes you'll get information just coming at you constantly through email or papers that are sent home or people are sending you messages and you almost need someone in your life whose only job is just, could you summarize that for me? <laughs> like, could you just take all that information and tell me what is most important? Because when everything's complicated, everything complex, everything overwhelming, you just want to know what is the most important thing? What do I need to give my attention to? Mark chapter 12, verse 28. Mark chapter 12, verse 28. One of the scribes came up and he heard Jesus and these other religious leaders who had been arguing, disputing with one another. And in verse 28, when this scribe saw that Jesus answered them well, he asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Now, if you don't know a lot about the New Testament, the Bible going on here, always ask questions, always be upfront about that. We just want to help one another know more about what's going on here. When you see the word scribe, who were the scribes in the New Testament? The scribes in the New Testament were those who interpreted and taught the law, God's law, to the people. They were considered the religious theological authority. If there was ever a judicial decision that needed to be made, people had to dispute about the law, the scribes were the ones who decided that. Most of the scribes were from a group called the Pharisees, okay? So not every scribe is a Pharisee, but many of the scribes were the Pharisees, and they knew the law of God, they knew how to interpret, they knew how to teach it, and if somebody had a question, you went to them to get the answer. So there's these disputes that have been going on, these arguments have been going on, and a scribe comes up and he hears what's going on, and he hears Jesus answer and thinks, that guy knows the law. <laughs> that guy knows what he's talking about. He's impressed by what he 
hears. And so he asked them this question, hey, from the law, what's the most important command? And it might sound like a strange question, except these were the type of questions that the scribes like to talk about. These were the type of questions that you can go into ancient Jewish writings, and this exact question is given there, and you see the scribes giving different answers to this. Even in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, what sums up the law and the prophets? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And this sums up. And so the teachers were always trying to summarize the information. Now you might think, what's the big deal? There's only 10 commandments. Surely he could figure out what the most important one is. But remember, in Jewish law, there were considered 613 commandments that the people were supposed to know and follow. I mean, you guys that are elementary school teachers, imagine having on your wall at school 613 rules. You could probably use 613 rules <laughs> for your classroom, but imagine having 613 laws that you had to know and follow, and they wanted to know, how do we summarize this? Teenagers, students, before Quizlet and before ChatGPT and before all the things you had, we had something called Cliff's Notes, all right? Anybody survive college based on Cliff's Notes, like the only way he made it through? Like all these books that you had to read, these things you had to know, you just went and bought the Cliff's Notes and it would give you a summary. It would give you the main idea of what's going on here. This is the question that's put in front of Jesus. How does he answer it? Verse 29, what does Jesus say? Verse 29, Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, this is going to continue into the next verse, but let's stop here just for a second. What's Jesus doing here? He's drawing from Deuteronomy chapter 6, and he's drawing from something that's called the Shema. And the Jewish people, they would have repeated this phrase every day, often multiple times a day. This is the core theological confession for God's people, for the Jewish people. They would have repeated this idea. Pay attention to Israel. Hear this. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. What is the main idea that you need to draw from this confession of faith? The idea that's being put forward here is not only that there is one God, but that he alone is the one true God. He is God above all else. There's no other who competes with him. The Lord is God. The Lord is God alone. Elementary kids, you guys that, that are in the room and parents that are trying to help your kids know about God, one phrase that I love to teach little kids when you're thinking about knowing who God is is just to say that he is the one true God. Like if we teach our kids, he is the one true God. Those three words together get at what this Shema is all about. Who is our God? He is the one true God. There's one God. He alone is God. He alone can be trusted. He is our one true God. This is the confession that's being made here. Now, what comes out of that confession? Look at the next verse. Jesus continues going on here. He says, because of this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Because he alone is God, he alone is Lord, he is the one true God. Because of that, we don't give ourselves to any other idols. He receives our full and complete devotion. Everything we are, 
our thoughts, our actions, our deepest emotions, our decision-making, everything we do is devoted fully to him. Everything we have, everything we are comes from him, so everything we do is in return to him, is in devotion to him. The passage from the New Testament, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Everything we are, everything we do in life is in devotion to him because he alone is God. He receives all of our praise. He receives all of the glory. Point number one this morning is very, very simple, which I hope all three are simple because we're trying to simplify all of this down. What's point number one? Love God. How does this all boil down? It boils down to what are the people of God supposed to do? They are supposed to love God. What does it mean to love God? It is our inner commitment and devotion to him that comes out in our conduct and our relationships. To love God is our inner commitment and devotion to him. It comes from the inside out and it shows up in the way we live and the way we conduct our relationships. That we want everything we do in life to be done in devotion to him. And here's the key. We know that our lives are shaped by whatever we give our attention and devotion to. Don't miss this. Our lives are shaped by whatever we give our attention and devotion to. And there is a spiritual battle in this world for your attention. There are companies, many companies, who their entire business model is built off getting and keeping your attention. We live in a world that's often called an attention economy. They need you to pay attention and continue to pay attention because that's how they gain revenue dollars and, and advertising dollars. There is in your soul, in the deepest part of your life, there's a spiritual battle for who or what receives your attention, for who or what receives your devotion. And Jesus says that for his people, at the very core of our lives, what does it all boil down to? It boils down to whether or not we love God. Now, it seems very general, so let's back up and remember something. Love, over time, can grow cold. If we're not careful, we know our relationships, our friendships, our families, our marriages, love, over time, if we're not careful, can grow cold. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do, all right? Don't write this down. Don't tell anybody next to you. Don't make up a false answer in your mind. Here's what I want you to do. If someone was to ask you, on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate your love for God? Okay? So just think about this. On a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate your love for God? I know that's very subjective, but just think in your mind, my devotion, my attention, what am I living for? Now, here's the second part to that question. Is that number trending up or down? So I, I'm thinking, okay, where do I rate myself? My, my love for God, my devotion, my attention to him, what, what number? And then, even more importantly, is that tending to go up or tending to go down? Because we know that over time, the book of Revelation, the very first letter that's written to the church of Ephesus there in the book of Revelation says, you're doing a lot of good things, you're very active in your religion, but what's the problem for that church in Revelation? Your love has grown cold, you've forgotten your first love. And so as God's people, 
one of our tasks, one of the things put in front of us is that we want to grow in love for God over time. How do you do that? You remember that he first loved you. How do you grow in your love for God? Our love for God is a response to his love for us. And if that comes across correctly from me, it should cause a deep breath <laughs> and freedom and peace and stability and hope in your life to know that you're not being demanded to do something on your own strength. You are responding to what God has done in your life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. How are we able to respond to God? Because God first loved us. And so one of the most important things you will do in your Christian life is you will remember and reflect on and appreciate and give thanks for God's love toward you. And when that love grows cold, often it's because something else has gotten our attention and we're called to repent and we're called to turn back and worship to God, that everything we do is focused toward him. Now, how do I know how do I know if I'm loving God more? Like, what does that look like? Guess what? Jesus gave us the answer. Look at the next verse. How can I know if I'm loving God more? Verse 31. Jesus says, the second, the one connected immediately to it is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What's Jesus doing? He is saying, love for God shows up in how you love your neighbor, how you love those who have been placed around you. Think about the Ten Commandments, the way the Ten Commandments are set up in the, in the Old Testament. The first four are devoted to love for God. The last six are devoted to how we treat other people. Jesus has taken the Ten Commandments and all 613 commandments, and he's boiled it down to this. Love God, love others. <laughs> so one of our... Uh, one of our teenagers stopped me in the hallway this morning and said, uh, Pastor, what's the sermon about this morning? Like, what are the main points? And I said, I said, love God and love others. And he said, I think you're going to have to do better than that. Everybody knows that already. <laughs> and I was like, well, hey, you know, points for honesty at that point. Like, you know, teenagers and older adults don't have much of a filter. So that works out great. Like, I love that. I can, I can appreciate that. Uh, Love God and love others. Like, just get that right there. But that is, how do we know that we're loving God? It shows up in how we're loving other people. If you don't believe me, read 1 John in your Bible. Because 1 John is five chapters that just say over and over, if you really believe God and you really worship him, it's going to show up in how you treat other people. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that feels weird, right? Am I supposed to love myself? Like, that feels selfish. But don't miss, it's very difficult to love other people well if you have a poor view of yourself. Low self-dignity, low self-worth often does not come out well toward other people. We see this in the church. The church is eaten up by narcissism. I mean, it's, it's a mess in, in the church as a whole because of things like narcissism. You think about codependency. In a codependent relationship, I need the other person. In a healthy relationship, I want to be with the other person. Needing the other person, that's not true love. Like that, that's not what it is here to love your neighbor as you love yourself. We want to be in a situation where we've received God's love 
And so I don't need that other person to fill up a gap that God's supposed to take care of. When I receive God's love, then I'm free to truly love somebody else. Who are we supposed to love? We're supposed to love your neighbor. Now, let's stop here for just a second. Love your neighbor. In the Jewish background of this passage, who was your neighbor? Your neighbor was supposed to be anyone who was a part of the, of the people of God, what, what they would have called the covenant community. You were part of the people of God. Now, what would be really helpful is if anybody would have ever asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And just hypothetically, Jesus could have responded with a story about a guy who was going down a road and, and got robbed and Maybe he could have told a story about when this guy got robbed, a couple of really religious people came by, and they saw this guy who had been robbed and beaten up, and the religious people, what did they do? Now remember, that's right, thank you. Now we're just making up the story of stories. No, no, it's from the Bible, and you guys know your Bible because you go to Emmaus Sunday School, so yes, that's awesome, I love that, thank you for that. The religious people see the guy who's been beaten up, and they just go around on the other side, and they don't care for him. But who does care for him? The Good Samaritan, this person who comes along and Jesus teaches this to say, this is what it looks like to be a neighbor. Who's your neighbor? The people you like? No, not necessarily the people you like. It's the people that God has put you in contact with. Those who you have called to come alongside and to care for them. And I want to care for them as my neighbor. Now, what does it look like to love your neighbor? Well, remember, when Jesus teaches this, He's drawing from Leviticus chapter 19. I want to show you a couple of verses in Leviticus 19 that talk about loving your neighbor. If you're part of a small group or you just want to look into the scripture this afternoon, I would encourage you to go back and look at Leviticus 19 right there before the verse that Jesus quotes because it'll tell you a lot about loving your neighbor. What does it mean to love your neighbor? Leviticus 19, 16. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. So how do you love your neighbor? You don't spread slander about them, and you don't do anything that endangers their life. Verse 17, do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. So your neighbor, you don't hate your neighbor in your heart, and you're willing to rebuke your neighbor, frankly, so you will not share in their guilt. What does it mean to love your neighbor? It means to speak the truth and love to them. That if there's someone that needs to be corrected, you're willing to do that. Verse 18. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. What does it mean to love your neighbor, the people that God's put around you? Don't seek revenge and don't bear a grudge. Ooh, that's tough. <laughs> like, if you just leave it at, hey, love other people, you're like, oh, thumbs up. Like, I want to love other people. What does it mean to love other people, Jesus? Uh, don't seek revenge and don't bear a grudge. And then you're like, man, wish I wouldn't have asked. Like, now, that feels really specific. Like, that brings it down to this is what it looks like to care for people. Okay, remember the summary. What is Jesus doing here? What is most important in your life? That you would love God and you would love others. What's most important in your life? That you would love God and love others. That teenager who caught me in the hall this morning, they're not wrong. That's overly simple. I, I get that, but we need the reminder. There's a question connected to this. Does X, a relationship, a habit, something in my schedule, something I've purchased, let's fill in X there. Does X 
help me love God and love others more. Teenagers, college students, young adults, when you are dating someone, when you are in a relationship with someone, one of the healthiest questions you can ask in that relationship is does this relationship help me to love God and love other people more? And if the answer is no, seek wise counsel. Open your heart to the work of God's spirit because in that relationship, you are trying to say, is this relationship, is this decision I'm making, is this purchase I'm making, is this the thing that gets my attention, is it moving me toward loving God and others more or is it actually moving me away from loving God and loving others more? And it's one of those questions in life that when you put it in front of you, it can really help with some decision making that has to happen in life. Okay, boil it all down. What are you supposed to do in life? You're supposed to love God and love others, and then watch what Jesus does next. We're going to take it to the finish line, but you need to see what he does next because if we stop with love God and love others, it's too general. It needs to be more specific. Look what happens next. Verse 32, the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that God is one and there is no other besides him. Verse 33, and to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself. This is much more important than all those burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Okay, so this scribe is moving in the right direction. He's understanding what's going on. Now watch what Jesus does next. Verse 35. Jesus is teaching in the temple, and he's going to focus on what the scribes have been talking about, what they've been teaching. So he's teaching in the temple in verse 35, and he said, how can the scribes, notice the connection, he's talking about what the scribes are, are focused on, how can the scribes say, that the Christ, the Messiah who is coming, how can they call this Christ the son of David? Verse 36, for David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. All right, pause just for a second, because this is confusing if we don't slow down and understand what's going on here. Number one, number two, and number three on the screen don't have anything to do with importance or superiority or the Trinity or anything. The only reason I put number one, number two, and number three up there is to help you keep the characters distinct. Because if you don't understand the three characters involved in this verse, things go sideways in, in a hurry. David, King David from the Old Testament, wrote so many of the Psalms, so much involved in the Old Testament. King David himself, in the power of the Holy Spirit, he said, the Lord, Yahweh, Adonai, the one true God, the, the Lord of all, the creator of all, said to my Lord, remember David's speaking, and Yahweh is speaking to David's superior, David's Lord, David's master, and he said to him, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. What's Jesus' conclusion from this in verse 37? David himself, King David from the Old Testament, he himself calls this Messiah figure, this one that Yahweh is speaking to, David refers to this figure as Lord. So how could this Messiah be his son? And the great throne heard him gladly. Okay, 
You're either cheering or you've got that emoji like where the like, head's exploding. Like, what, what, what's going on here? What is, Jesus, what is Jesus saying at this point? What he's saying, King David writing the Psalms in the Old Testament, if he is writing about the Messiah who is going to come as his descendant one day, he should just refer to him as his son as his descendant, as he's less than. I, I love my son. I'm not gonna call him my master or my lord, okay? He's my son whom I love, not, not my master or my lord. Someone who comes after you is your descendant or your son. But what did David do in Psalm 110? What did he refer to his descendant as? As his lord, as his Messiah. Okay, bring all this together. Jesus is saying, I have come as this Christ, as this Messiah, as the one sent to bring about God's plans, God's kingdom. And when David spoke about me, he wasn't just speaking of me as his son, he was speaking of me as his master and his Lord. What has Jesus done? He has taken all the teaching of scripture and he has centered it on himself that he has come as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He has come as the Messiah, and not just a human descendant of David, but as the one who existed before David, and above David, and above all else. So what's point three this morning? We're gonna love God, we're gonna love others, and we are gonna make disciples. Because if you go around just talking about loving God and loving others, that's super general. You could go out on the street this afternoon or go to the restaurant this afternoon and somebody could say, what was the sermon about? And you could say it was about how to love God and love others. And there are people from all kinds of faith backgrounds or no faith background that would give you two thumbs up. Man, that's great. Love God, love others. But here's the key. Don't miss this. When you narrow it down, what does it look like? How are we able to love God and love others? It's because of Jesus now all of a sudden the conversation at lunch got awkward. <laughs> like now all of a sudden there, there's a dividing point here. Love God, love others. What's that drive toward us becoming fully devoted followers of Jesus? People who love God and love others, they confess that Jesus is Lord. I love this verse from 1 John 3. This is God's command for you. To believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. What are we called to do? Believe in Jesus, confess him as Savior and Lord, and love others. Let me tell you about two of my friends at seminary in New Orleans. So we were out doing ministry one day, and I was kind of the third wheel on this situation, but that was okay, I could live with that. These two guys knew each other a little bit better. One of the guys, as we were going around New Orleans doing ministry, one of the guys, he was the big theology guy. He was like, we're all about theology. I'm only out here doing this ministry primarily because I have to for class. Like, we need to be studying the Bible, learning doctrine, learning theology. The other guy, he was all about loving people. Doing doctrine and theology was okay, but it was kind of a waste of time. We just need to be out in the community loving people. There's a tension here that people still have. There are people that think, man, I wish we didn't talk about theology and doctrine. It's so divisive and confusing. And if we would just focus on the red letters in the Bible from Jesus and focus on loving people and do away with all this doctrine and theology stuff, we'd be a lot better as a church. Then you got the people over here 
They're like, we just need to preach the gospel. We're just going to tell people about Jesus. We don't need to be doing justice work or community ministry or sin relief or any of that. We just need to focus on the gospel. And can I tell you this morning from Scripture, that is a divide in a game we are not going to play. Because the call of Scripture is that we will love God and love others and that we will confess Jesus as Lord. And so we are going to be a church, and I hope that God puts this in your heart as a follower of Jesus, that I want to love people. I want to care for people. I want to get out in the community and care for people. And do you know what Jim Lee wants to see when people are cared for in the community? He wants to see them trust in Jesus, to follow him, to become disciples of him. And preaching the gospel and caring for people are not enemies. They're not things that have been set against one another. It's the calling of the people of God. And that's what we're going to give ourselves to. So what are we called to? How does all of the Christian life boil down? We're going to love God. We're going to love others. And we're going to make disciples. Because Jesus is our only hope. He is our only hope for overcoming sin and death. He is where true life and salvation is found. So how do we celebrate that? How do, we, how do we bring that to a conclusion this morning? I know no better way than to take the Lord's Supper. That this is our act of worship. This is our response this morning. We're going to love God, love others, make disciples. How are we going to show that this morning? We're going to take the Lord's Supper. I want you to know, I put this up on the screen. The Lord's Supper is an act of worship for those who have confessed Jesus as Savior and Lord. If this is not your story... I want you to know how thankful I am that you are here. I hope Emmaus is a place that you can come to ask questions, that you can come to learn. I hope when you come here, your heart is drawn to know Jesus and to follow him. But I want you to know that this time is an act of worship for those people who are coming and taking the bread and juice. They are saying, Jesus is Lord. He is my hope. This is an act of worship. But if you're here as a Christian, hear me out. Look at screen two. <laughs> if you're here as a follower of Jesus, remember the Lord's Supper is for those who are seeking to love God and love others. Paul tells us in, in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 11, that when we come together, we are coming together as the body of Christ, as those who are committed to loving one another. And so this can be a powerful time of repentance for you this morning. Can I ask you to bow your heads with me for a moment? Close your eyes. In just a moment after I pray, I'm going to invite you to stand up come to one of these tables and, and take the two cups that are stacked together and take those back to your, your chair. Remember, 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 to participate in this Lord's Supper, you are saying, Jesus is Lord. I'm devoted to following him. He has taken away my sin. He's taken away the power of death. My whole life is devoted to him. I want to love God and love others through the power of Jesus. And if you're here this morning, you're just not sure about Christianity, you're not sure that you're ready to commit to Jesus, I can ask you to consider his work in your life, use this as a time of reflection, think about what your life is devoted to. Emmaus, we want to be a church that loves and celebrates and gives glory to God. We want to be a church that loves our neighbors and our enemies well. And we want to be a church where we are always pointing people toward Jesus. And so we come now at this moment to give all glory and worship to him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.